0: Thank you. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 14 of Scotonomics. It's really good to have you with us tonight. We've got an absolutely wonderful interview and a wonderful story um, for us to cover tonight. I actually tried to edit some of this out, but it flows so beautifully, and we cover some really interesting topics that you've got the full 48 minutes uh, to look forward to. And as always on Scotonomics... Um, you get to spend some time with myself and also with Karen van Sweden. Hello, Karen, how are you doing?
1: I'm good, yeah, I'm just back from COP.
0: Excellent, back via so, Edinburgh and now back in Aberdeen.
1: Yep, I had to um, explain why I was involved in the paid to Pollute campaign, so that was quite interesting. We maybe had 50 or 60 people in the room, so that was good. Um, I was also with a a Dutch campaigner who has challenged Shell. There was also an Italian campaigner there as well um, and a Danish uh, academic and also a young German campaigner too. So it was a really interesting room.
0: Yeah, that that must have made you feel a lot better, like you weren't the only person. I know there's two other people on the the paid for pollute campaign who are suing the UK government, but it must have been felt good to be in a room with other people doing something similar of who, who've had the same kind of motivation to to try and make try and make things better and, and to make a difference
1: yeah i think it's the golden age of climate litigation um, so yeah that's uh, it's happening all around the world just now and i know that there's a case against um, exxon i think in massachusetts um, so there's there's a lot going on in this respect
0: and did you get a chance to head over to the um, uh, COP venues or were you we just doing the kind of fringe stuff?
1: I just did the fringe stuff. Yeah, that was enough. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I've been watching a lot over the last... I watched a little bit more this week than I, than I did last week. Um, it's, been, it's been really interesting, especially from an event organiser's perspective when, you know, for the last two years I've been helping organisations and individuals run more virtual events and seeing how good they are and how important they are for the climate crisis, and then COP comes along and everyone's there. All the speakers are there, very few of them apart from the the Queen um, is actually coming in with virtual they all want to be there and it's not really helping this idea of net zero for the events industry if everyone still thinks you've got to attend an event physically. So I've got loads from watching some of the sessions uh, remotely. I'm sure other people have as well, but it's been interesting for so many, so many reasons. Um, Do you want to have a a little kind of summary of what we're going to speak about tonight?
1: So um, we have Dr David Patrick. He is the author of Front Page Scotland, which um, came out quite recently. Um, I was very interested in getting him onto the show because the first two chapters are on the economics coverage and currency coverage during the 2014 campaign. So, um, yeah, I think this will be very interesting for our audience.
0: Yeah, I think it'd be really good for people to hear more of um, David because he speaks about so much. We, we've just tried to kind of try and get him to concentrate on the economics and how important that was and, and how it was covered. But when we look back at 2014, as, as we do in a little bit of detail in the, in the video and I, I'm sure we will in the chat, it's just incredible to see the coverage that we had in this kind of almost, you know, this, this wall of negativity and I th- looking back, it was amazing that we got to 45% when you consider what we were up against. You know, And, 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 and in a sense, I felt really frustrated by watching this story un- 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 unfold in front of me of what happened. But also at the end of it, I thought, but we've still got 45%. So what would happen if we can do this differently going forward? So I think there's some dark, but I don't know if you agree, there's also some kind of light in, um, in, in the areas that he covers in the video.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I, I think there's a lot of positivity to be garnered from this interview, absolutely. And also, we do go into um, how this all affects democracy, which is very interesting too.
0: Yeah, yeah, you asked some you asked some really good questions on this, so we we did go we did go quite deep into some of these issues. Anyway, enough of us talking. I hope you enjoy this. I'm sure you will,
1: and we will see you after the video. actually studying for my degree and I had very little time to read the newspapers which I I do normally read them a lot but I was picking up um, generally that there was a a negativity um, about independence uh, or rather Scotland becoming an independent country. Um, Would you say from your research that that was kind of the overall feeling?
2: Yeah I mean certainly the way that you <clears throat> you introduced that and described that there, Karen, um, is a, a perfect example of one of the things that come that, that appeared in my research, is that um, even though there, there was a focus by the newspapers on the economic aspect of the, the report, and, and even more so, there was um, definitely a disproportionate number of those stories were looking at the potential speculative negative consequences of independence. But it's interesting that you said that you talk about a sort of subliminal influence or this passive influence that the media can have. Your example talks to one of the things that I mentioned in the book and the fact that even if you're not a, a daily consumer or a daily purchaser or even a, a regular purchaser of a um, of a newspaper, you can still be influenced by these media messages. Um, um, in the course of just one morning, you could easily pass several outlets which sell, which sell newspapers or you could be sitting for example in public transport next to someone else who's reading a newspaper so without you ever having picked one up or spent any money on one or having actually engaged in it but especially if something is on the front pages in bold letters and um, that is something we can have a passive influence on you even when you don't realize it. and I think your example um is Uh, is perfect in that regard because it mirrors what i've heard from several other people who were living in scotland at the time not huge or regular consumers of the media by any means but they had this almost sense of impending economic doom and purely that was i think largely was because of the the repetition and consistency of this negative economic message in the press but the the more revealing thing, um, to just to speak to your own example, the more revealing thing is that this can actually in, in, uh, impact or influence the thinking of people who never actually um, explicitly or actively engage with the media and they can still be uh, affected by it.
1: And you state that there was a dominant theme of uncertainty in the press discussion on the economy of an independent Scotland.
2: The, the notion of uncertainty or the... How else would you describe it? The theme or the concept of uncertainty was almost ubiquitous through the, the press coverage of the referendum. Um, and that that applies to virtually every outlet. Um, there aren't really any exceptions in this regard. You're talking about um, economic projections, which are five years, 10 years or more down the line. Most of it is, at the very best, informed speculation. But the, the contrast and the, the, the telling aspect Um, and i think revealed itself from our research is that the speculation emanating from a pro-independence position was given far more critical treatment than the speculative opinions which were emanating from um the better Better together uh, campaign for example or um businesses or think tanks or the like that were connected to the no campaign in some regard um and again it's there's a, there's a sort of common sense belief which I think is is a little simplistic As a lot of people who have a, a more negative impression of the media and their influence talk about how the media will lie, they'll just make things up and from my research it's not actually like that. It's what it is is that the manner in which things are framed and the way, the way they are presented to you can give a false impression of truth rather than it being a, a direct lie, if you can understand the contrast. So it's um, and obviously, you know, if you're in high school, and most of us, the way the way we grow up, you're never really taught to read or or, or engage with the media in any um, critical sense. You're certainly not taught it in school to, to you know look beyond the headlines and look what sort of agenda or editorial bias might be um, underlining that to some regard. So the fact that you know someone who has you know been a, a, um, a consumer of newspapers their whole life. Um, and they see it as a trusted, reliable news source. If day after day after day, they're seeing bold headlines, page after page, that, you know, this banking group has, has set, um, voiced their concerns over independence, this supermarket group have said something in regards to the cost of living. When it builds up and it's consistently used, I I, I can't really blame your sort of general audience for being affected by this, because we're, we're sort of conditioned and raised to assume that the newspaper is a trusted source for these things. So the fact that they present these things and frame these concepts, which, again, are essentially just informed speculation at best, that they can um, present it in a way that makes it out that it's not in speculation, it's more a, a demonstrable fact. That's what can have a very negative impact, I think, on the the general process and people's understanding of the economic debate.
1: Yeah, I guess for the newspapers as well. You know, it's important for them to have headlines that sell. The other thing that you uh, observed as well that there was there was a lot of um, names. There were a lot of names from the energy and banking industry. Being granted front page exposure, would you th- Do you think that that was that was quite dominant?
2: It was. It, it didn't happen all the way through the process, but you did see it with a lot more regularity, especially in maybe the last four or five weeks leading up to the referendum. Um, where again, you know, the concerns of uh, business groups like uh, or, or, business, or economic entities like BP, Shell, John Lewis, these well-known names um the their their concerns over these future projections and again is there was a lot of um there was a lot of that appeared on the uh front pages with in very few instances was there actually even inside you know on the editorial page or on the, the comments section most of these claims were taken at face value and weren't um critiqued to any great degree it would that is occasionally that that's not to say that the claims from the the oil industry or the banking industry in every instance went unchallenged. Um, <clears throat> some columnists in uh, the likes of the Herald and occasionally some columnists in the Sun would would challenge some of the more like overtly catastrophic negative um, uh, projections. A section of the newspaper which was far more or where it was far more prevalent to find either positive um, projections for independence or. Uh, and aspects that were more critical of the negative reporting of independence, that cropped up in the letters sections far more. But the thing is, is and this is purely speculation on my part, is I can only assume that the, the letters section is probably one section that most people who even consume a newspaper probably don't read with as much frequency, whereas the likes of a, an editorial or especially a front page is something which will get noticed. So it's not that there was absolutely no coverage which painted um, Scotland's economic prospects in a potentially positive light. But they did tend to be restricted to only a certain few titles. And even in those instances, it it was further restricted to either the occasional comment piece or um, in a lot of instances to the, the letters section
1: the the peak of business coming out against scottish independence you said in your book was around about the 11th of of september just Mm. before the vote and um and that saw bp and shell throwing their weight behind sir ian wood who's currently a lot in the headlines at the moment
2: remarks of ian wood uh, sir ian wood at the time were interesting and again it comes back to my previous point about the the lack of criticism uh, or the lack of critique that was leveled to some Uh, commentators or you know business elites at the time and and serene was one of the key one of the key examples of that is because of his his warnings about you know the sort of dire future in this dying industry Um, again that received front page coverage received an awful lot of editorial space and comment and again the overriding trend is that he was essentially taking at his word and of course he is an industry leader and he's an industry expert but uh, one just take his Word on what will be the case ten and fifteen years down the line seems quite um, naive in a regard because how could he how could he actually realistically know these things and beyond that um again the only times that he was really directly critiqued was in the um, was in the letters pages as occasionally somebody would say you know uh, why isn't it being raised the fact that so Ian Wood despite comments to the the contrary. Is very well connected to the "Better Together" campaign, so it's not like these um, statements have appeared in a vacuum or just because of some uh, professed desire to better inform the public of the economic debate. There, there was, I would assume, at least some political agenda. So, in the reporting, the way that Sirine Woods' comments were um, were, uh, were analyzed and reported, they were really just taken at face value and given an awful lot of. Um, uh, given an awful lot of coverage, um, both in terms of like quantity and the number of newspapers that appeared in, for, which were essentially just the, the speculative comments of one individual. What
0: I found quite interesting, David, about specifically the Ian Wood comment about um, Scotland running out of oil in 30 years, which we'll put up on the screen for the audience, was that the, the newspapers reported it as an independent Scotland would run out of oil in 30 years. And I always found that a little bit peculiar. I oh. think that if it, an independent Scotland would run out of oil quicker than, an indip- than a Scotland
2: still involved in oil. No, that's, that's, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. They did always try and frame it in those, in those terms. That's a really interesting observation. Yeah, so, so I think that certainly doesn't prove anything, but it certainly alludes to
0: an agenda, because it mm. was specifically saying this will happen in Scotland.
2: Um, and it won't happen as part of the United Kingdom. Well, I think it tied in with a larger trend is that obviously, you know, what, was, what would take place in, a, in the Scottish economy, both after independence and, and even just in the transition period from a, a potential vote to when it actually happened, which could be, you know, several years, if, um, uh, if, if not, you know, possibly more than a decade. It's, it's all speculative. But one of the um, aspects that, if you were even just a, a very passive uh, consumer of the news is that you could be easily forgiven for believing that the sky was going to fall and if Scotland became independent not because uh, because it was <clears throat> because virtually any aspect of um, personal or national finances that could be affected it was reported and reported double page spreads, front page news often given editorial and comment um, validation as well. And that could be anything from mortgage prices um, pensions household bills um, house prices <clears throat> almost anything that could actually affect the, your average person's finances would be in some way affected and it was generally said that all of them would be affected negatively but obviously i don't have to explain to, to either of you but that's not really how a, an economy works and, and really it's not that like you know one you know some things go up some things go down and there's this constant state of flux it's not that there's just a dramatic day where everything, you know, uh, goes to pot, but that was the impression it was getting. A more cynical aspect, and this, this, this is one of the few times where I think either the journalists or the contributors who said things like this might have been taking a bit of taking a bit of a liberty and perhaps deliberately misrepresenting what they knew to be the case. As, as much as it's a minority of coverage, there are instances where output gives the direct impression that if scotland were to vote yes the things like people's pensions or bank accounts would be worthless on the 19th of september like it would happen o- overnight and that um and that was one of the things which i think directly worried some people it was this idea that if it didn't happen overnight maybe in the weeks or months after independence the uncertainty would lead to, you know, mortgage payments going up or, you know, you know your bank account suddenly being uh, worthless. And that that aspect all feeds into a wider trend, which if you were going to generalise as to how the newspaper industry in Scotland and the UK discussed economics, as regards um, uh, a potentially independent Scotland, the vast majority of it um, frames independence in a negative sense. That is so interesting because mortgages could have
0: gone up, but they also could have come down with an independent Scotland. But what you're saying is there was never
2: really any analysis of that of
0: that, that um, kind of
2: sunny uplands or, or the positive
0: side. That's fascinating.
2: But one example that did come out at me was the idea that um, that supermarkets would have to raise their price they would have to raise their prices if Scotland were independent. And this was said to be ju- this was reported as being justified because of logistical reasons, transport costs, etc. But in none of the reporting, <clears throat> uh, despite the fact that the likes of uh, Asda and Morrisons and whatnot had said this would likely be the case, there was no discussion or even um, mention of the fact that in a, a capital, you know, in a in terms of sort of supply and demand in a normal capitalist marketplace, if some, uh, out, say Asda and Sainsbury start putting up their prices, as other ones such as like Tesco or Lidl will put down the prices. It's not that every supermarket, because there's obviously always going to be a market of five million plus people who need to buy their groceries. So all of the, so there's going to have to be a, a companies that would service this, this demand. But again, a way it was occasionally reported in the the press was that should Scotland become independent, you wouldn't be able to get a pint of milk, <laughs> and if you could, and if you could get it, it would, you know, cost you ten quid or something like that, and it, it sort of skirted over a very I would say a, a sort of basic understanding of how a, a marketplace on the, you know, in the high street, and in terms of household groceries, actually works.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it was really noticeable that, that particularly because I come from a family who were involved in the oil industry as well, that they didn't, they, they didn't take the word of uh, Alex Kemp, who's the professor of oil economy at Aberdeen University. He's a friend with my mum and my dad, <laughs> and he is the expert on this. And, you know, I couldn't see his name anywhere. So the press were taking uh, the word of someone who has obviously um, a, 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 a stake rather than a, an academic and new, more neutral approach to thinking about this. So that that seemed, for me, that seemed a very illogical way to go. But
2: largely, and to, to mention Professor Kemp as a, a good example of this is, what what it really comes down to is based on the editorial underpins or the editorial agenda of a newspaper is essentially determines what expert you will talk to you know if if you know if you can find an expert who will say exactly what you want then you will propagate that and if there's someone else who's saying something opposite it's not you don't have to denigrate them you don't you just ignore them you just don't mention that that's part of the conversation and that's the most common way and then Several of your journalists are also referring to, you know, for example, uh, Sir Ian Wood, if they're describing him as a, you know, a titan of of the oil industry, a captain of industry, you know, a, a world leading expert, you know, for someone, your average reader who doesn't really either know who he is or know what his standing is, if you have these trusted voices telling you that this is someone you should listen to, this is their credentials and you repeat it and you repeat it and you repeat it you do convince people that their opinion holds weight. But as um, you're alluding to, Karen, there are several on any issue to do with the referendum, whether that's climate, defence, the economy, health, anything. There are a variety of experts out there who have varying opinions, all of which might be based on just as much research and, um, and work being put into that. But whether or not these people get the same platform, because of what they're saying is a completely different matter. And that's probably one of the main ways that the media can act as um, gatekeepers for for the dissemination of political information. So it's not, as I said, it's not necessarily ever really the case that newspapers directly lie, but the way that they present things to you can have a huge impact.
1: Yeah, and I think that's got a wider um, uh, influence as well over our democracy. I mean, for me, I really understood a couple of years ago that how people don't understand how our economic system works has has a wide range, range ranging effect on our, our democracy. So has this obviously as well. And um, I, I do despair at the, the lack of um you know intellectual parity um in the newspapers. I, I feel that they have actually a public duty to present some sort of intellectual parity but obviously that's not the case. I think, you know, what I, I worry about as well is that the, uh, the papers that are ostensibly saying that they're left-wing and the papers that they're saying they're right-wing are are actually saying the same things or they were at, on this issue or that's what it seemed to be to me.
2: Across the board, out of the the, the eight newspapers that informed this study, so that was the... the, the Scot- In each instance, it was the Scottish version of these newspapers. So it was the Scottish Sun, the Daily Record, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express the times the telegraph the herald and the scotsman um so that's eight separate newspaper outlets and none of them were explicitly or overtly uh, pro independence obviously the only example in scotland at the time was the sunday herald which came out um, but that that didn't inform the study i didn't look at the sunday newspapers um and out of the as, as far as i remember out of of those eight newspapers the only one which didn't Explicitly advise or encourages readers to um, vote uh, vote no, and it's a, a, as an a, a, an explicit editorial column was the Scottish Sun, and um, so when you take sort of um, consensus, if you want to call it that, across right, left, you know, English title, Scottish, UK title, Scottish title, and now you're you're completely right, but that has to have an impact on surely the the terms of the democratic debate because if most outlets. Um, If most outlets, um, whether that be, uh, you know, television is one thing, but in the newspaper industry, if most outlets are all saying the exact same editorial line, then that, I think, has to um, be to the detriment of the democratic process, because you're not getting as as wide a variety of opinions and approaches as you could. So it means that, as you mentioned, there might, might not be a sort of intellectual parity. Um, there with the these the producers of news and with the the consumers of news, um, and I, to go back and I know it's slightly off the 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 specifics of the economic question that you raised, Caiman. Uh, but when you actually look at the press as a whole, and this might sound quite cynical, but when it comes to things like a referendum and where there's a certain um, uh, a political agenda being pushed, is in several instances, especially in the news report sections of newspapers, a lot of reporting, at the very best, has turned some journalists into little more than stenographers for either political parties or political interests. Because when you read what counts as a news report, it's quite clearly based on a PR um, release by um, you know some some politically connected group. And then you might get a couple of um, you know response quotes and usually those response quotes further emphasize the framing of that or f- further emphasize the agenda of that news report. And that again I think also undermines the democratic process because it means that only certain certain groups have access to this particular soapbox. if you want if you want to call it that and in the in the, the example of 2014 um, those who were connected to better together. Obviously, had far more avenues to disseminate their message than people who were relate, who were associated with the Yes campaign. And while the Yes campaign might be able to put out PR reports, you know, and, to, and it might get some play in the likes of the Herald, maybe the Daily Record, a stretch, or possibly the Sun, is not going to get anywhere near the same as a negative report about independence that's put out by Better Together, and it instantly knows that it can potentially get front page and editorial coverage almost automatically in the likes of the Express, the Mail, the Telegraph, the most centre-right, conservative-leaning, explicitly unionist newspapers. And I think all these factors taken together probably do undermine the democratic process because it muddies the waters in term, in the terms of debate. Whereas um, I agree with you, as I think that to a degree the press probably should have some responsibility to, to um, inform the public um, and is in, a, in a balanced and, um, and way, in a way that's not impartial. But unfortunately, that's what that the, the newspaper industry isn't bound by any such thing to, to stick to that. And they're not supposed to be impartial. Um, and that's in some ways, that's a selling point for some people.
1: The renewables were hardly mentioned. And obviously, this Ooh. is a huge resource for Scotland. But the precarity of the, the oil supply was certainly um, mentioned a lot
2: but if we take sort of renewables and oil and bring them both under the the same banner of um, energy resources again i'm just 'm I'm, I'm picking this off the top of my head, but I would assume that if the, the, what was it, um, what was being discussed was Scotland's energy resources ninety five easily ninety five percent plus the focal point was oil and as you mentioned the the supposed lack of it or or future scarcity of it but um it was one of those things that i didn't actually i didn't specifically go looking for when i first um when i first embarked on this research and it just sort of appeared to me through its um uh by its absence really was yeah there's, there's virtually no discussion of renewables whatsoever whether that's wind power tidal power so this is a significant thing not to cover when
0: you're talking about energy.
2: Yeah, it's, 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 I, I found it quite a I found it quite strange that it was overlooked um, to such a degree, and it, even in those occasions where it, it would be discussed, it would be in you know like a, a, a smaller news article, you know, buried on the inside pages. It was never it was ve- it was never given, for example, um, much like in, by way of editorial coverage, or you would never get like a major columnist. Devoting an entire um, an entire piece to to um, energy beyond um, the discussion regards oil, and I think it's something. Should there be another referendum, or should the independence question become a live political issue again in the next few years? Um, I think that is something which will probably be slightly different from the coverage in 2014, especially you know, for example, if Scotland hosting the the COP26. Um, uh, conference, that does shine a renewed light on the issue of uh, climate change, and I think these issues will get probably not, I don't think they'll dominate the debate by any means, but I think they'll get more coverage proportionally than they did in uh, in 2014.
0: Economics was covered pretty ubiquitously across the um, eight papers that you looked at. What we are seeing happening at the moment is that a lot of coverage of the climate is being covered by business editors or economics editors and this is climate and i was wondering what happened around about the referendum was it the economic correspondents who were talking about the economy or was it being covered by all these other kind of
2: correspondents who it looked
0: like <coughs> must have had some kind of knowledge or, or or expertise in the economy
2: it's a, it's a really really interesting question william um, it's I suppose, without um, exaggerating the case, from from my reading of the sources, certainly, in 2014, everyone in Scotland was apparently a professional economist, especially people who were um, who were professional um, columnists or opinion piece writers. As, um, while well, by by no means can I actually speculate or hypothesise on um, how much understanding various journalists would have in these. Of course, there were there were journalists who have more of a um, more of an established uh, an established career in reporting on economic issues, but especially those who are on the um, political beat. Because you know, if you're on the political beat, you're still going to be covering, you know, the budget or various government things. So, so discussing economics seems to go hand in hand with political correspondence to a degree, but beyond that. Um, there were people who aren't even necessarily like prof- um, professional journalists. It would be more like guest columnists or you know MPs or the like who were providing material. And in these instances, yeah, I think some of them were either being uh, dishonest either with the audience or themselves in terms of their own grasp of of economics, especially on like a national or international level. Um, but yeah, you touched on something which is is, is very hard to miss is the fact that like everyone seems to be able to, and not only everyone seems to believe they're very, well, very uh, well-versed in economics, but beyond that, and this is either, I don't know, is it uh, hubris, or I don't know what the, the, the right term might be, but the amount of people who seem to be incredibly sure of what, Scotland and the UK and the global economic system was going to be like five years down the line, ten years down the line is quite remarkable. And we only have to look at the massive changes that have happened in the, the last couple of years as a result of a completely unforeseen uh, global issue, is to show that all those kind of like those models and whatnot aren't really worth the paper they're written on. But that doesn't, at the time, that by no means deterred countless commentators. From saying with a you know bizarre degree of certainty what an independent Scotland would look like in forty years, for example.
1: The other thing that you mentioned as well was that perhaps austerity had primed the fertile soil, based on uh, on existing fears post two thousand and eight. Do you want to say some more about that?
2: This is more rather than the sort of like media analyst side of me coming out. Is this is maybe more my historical training trying to look at this? Is even though even though it's only seven years ago, which is both is and isn't a long period of time comparatively, is in the context of 2014, the, um, the financial crash had happened 2007, 2008, which is still you know in, in fairly close living memory um, for, for people. Um, but beyond that is following their election in 2010, is up to the point of the referendum in 2014, there'd already been four years of conservative-led austerity which had led to you know you know you know library closures various services being taken away you know um various financial safety nets and, and things that that had helped people and people in 2014 as a result of that crash and as a result of government policies were, were demonstrably struggling so it meant that if you've been going through a period where you're already worrying about your household bills or how you're going to pay for this how you're going to cover this if the news if the press then uh almost collectively say well if you embark on um, independence all these things are going to get worse as you can completely understand why some people might be um receptive to that sort of if you want to term it that sort of fear-mongering because it's playing on people's existing anxieties you know if you if you're already in that position where you know you have to stretch your household budget to the max or you know that you are struggling to make ends meet then being told that your household bills are going to go up by 1300 a year. Your mortgage is going to go up by 2000 a year. You know, those are very, very real concerns. Um, and for people at, you know, every stage of their life, that could be students, people who are young families, el- you know, um, elderly people, um, any number. And again, the fact that these, I think that sort of negative economic, that doomsday style reporting would have had an impact at any time because it always does but given the historical context of when it happened, so this post 2008 and especially post 2010 period is, yeah, the for the the sort of like roots of that particularly thorny rose to grow, there was fertile soil there because that it was something that most people would experience and had, had to endure by that point for the better point of almost five years or more. As long as you've got um, governments of any colour which are going to stick to this um, this program of austerity, is it's going to tighten household budgets? It's going to make people more desperate, and it's going to make them more receptive to these type of negative economic messages. And I would speculate, but I would be fairly sure that should there be should there be another referendum in the next few years, the economic question again is going to be pushed right to the front. But now the, the s- similar arguments that were made in twenty. 2014 are going to now be presented as having even more weight because if the argument is that like Britain is in so much collective debt that Scotland can't afford to be independent well the UK is an in infinitely more collective debt in 2021 than it was in 2014 so if people believe that argument or accepted that argument then it's going to be more convincing to them now and given you know the various things that like it's public knowledge that the impact of the coronavirus pandemic and various things, you know, having to fund the health service adequately to combat it, the furlough scheme, bounce back business loans and various things, is this whole process has cost the UK a lot of money and that is what a lot of people are aware of. So it means that should there be another referendum, that very simple um, but for some people frightening message of essentially Scotland simply can't afford independence because of recent history, and um, that might be, and well, might be. Um, I can almost guarantee that that will be a, a dominant narrative factor. Should there be another referendum in the next few years, they'll, they'll link Scotland's poor economic prospects to the coronavirus pandemic.
1: Well, I hope that me and William can do something to debunk that um, with this program. That's that's my hope and my prayer. <laughs> I have to say, as as a rampant atheist, but um, the the other thing that you brought up as well was the underrepresentation of women within the, the debate, um, and the youth thought that really uh, women's vo- voices need to go up by a factor of four um, before the next referendum. In some
2: instances, in some in some newspapers, uh, that that would be the case, and unfortunately, it's something I only managed to sort of glance over in the book because I'd already written an article called um it's called who uh, who writes the news uh, so you can find it in scottish affairs it's, it's free to find it um and yeah if looking at it um a, most of that is on a purely statistical basis so purely looking at who you know quantifying how many news articles there was comment pieces letters and then sub-quantifying that by the apparent gender of who wrote it um, and in most instances, the the discrepancy between male and female contributors is enormous. I mean, some in some newspapers, like the um, some newspapers, especially it's more pronounced in the more centre right newspapers. So I don't know if that's because there's some sort of like ingrained boys' culture or whatever someone could speculate on, but across across the board, you're really looking at about maybe between 25 and 30 percent of all newspaper coverage is produced by women which is hugely disproportionate given that women make up roughly 50 percent of the population and I think that that has to have an impact to go back to an earlier question I think that has to have an impact on the the the, 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 the way in which the democratic process um unfolds and the way it, it's the way it happens because if Again, I've always said that this might seem a really naive or idealistic way to look at this, but one definite positive from the referendum process for me was that it encouraged a, a sort of debate on a national level, which hadn't really happened before in my lifetime, and that's shown by, you know, the voter turnout and, the, you know, the fact that people are just talking about it all the time. But if in a the public sphere such as the... or a public forum such as the newspaper industry if women's voices are so demonstrably and evidently marginalised, that has to have an impact on the, frames, the frame of the debate. And I don't think it can be seen as a proper national conversation if 50% of the population are being deliberately marginalised for, for, whatever, for whatever reason. So moving forward, I would hope that should this um, become, again, I would, I would hope that there are more female voices um, in the debate because I think that can only be a good thing.
1: Well, of course, I'm going to agree with that. <laughs> um, yeah, so you would say, on the whole, you think that there was an imbalance in the coverage.
2: There was a, the, there definitely was an imbalance in terms of um, the degree to which uh, negative stories about independence got um, far more coverage and far more um, prominent place. again, if that's through, like on the front pages and whatnot. But an aspect of this to bear in mind is newspapers, as much as we we spoke about this earlier and we, you know, from an idealistic point of view, it's something which you would want the industry to aspire to or to, to achieve. There is nothing, um, can, you know, a newspaper, the newspaper industry is not under any obligation to be balanced. Right? If they want to be partisan, so long as they don't print outright lies, it's not, um, it's not out with their remit. Uh, to do that and so so what I would instead of instead of wishing for this like utopia or this nirvana where the newspaper industry does uphold uh, everything that we would want it to and it's perfectly balanced and it's it's, um is completely impartial that isn't the reality we live in and for if I was going to give someone like advice on how to handle the media or how to interpret the media is is maybe not to reject it completely, but is to always be aware that these the newspapers, far more so than for example, television news, is they're allowed to be impartial. In fact, they're actually encouraged to be. Some of them it's their business model. You know, you only have to look at the editorial line of the likes of the Daily Mail or the Daily Express, as they cater to their audience. So the so newspapers um whilst not being encouraged to they are by default and the way the industry is now they are impartial so there might well be of course there is this huge imbalance in the report and, and in the specific example we are talking about there was a huge imbalance towards reporting which you would say was more often than not more beneficial to one side of the debate but that's to be expecting it's certainly not something that's going to change dramatically should there be another referendum but I would hope that some people might be at the very least a bit more aware of these um, uh, of these impartialities and, because, and by being so perhaps be a bit more critical and self-aware of what they're reading and not just taking it at face value. I, I went through two
0: referendum campaigns in a short period of time because I live in Catalonia and I was oh, here for the 2017 referendum and, and looking at the media coverage of the referendum and the build up to the referendum in Scotland and to Catalonia was very different. And you know, you may be aware that the Catalan um, printed press is much more balanced, and there's a lot mm. of publications which are in favour of Catalan independence. But the one striking difference that I wanted to bring up was in the context of economics, and even the um, pro keeping part of Spain newspapers would have never led with the idea that catalonia could not survive or thrive as an Mm. as an independent country because they, they, they they tried this they tried this at forums they tried it in some of the papers and the tv programs and they were just shouted or laughed off the screen because the idea to a catalan even if you're pro independence or pro spain that catalonia couldn't survive or thrive as an independent country was just seen as a completely impossible situation to start from, because they looked across Europe and saw smaller countries who had less resources, less population doing really well. So it was just kind of straight away, just it it was closed off as an argument. And that meant that the conversation was much more about what type of economy would Catalonia have? How would it be, how would its relationship be with Europe? What would it do with taxation? How would it do with corporate governance? And what I found in Scotland is we never got to that level of conversation about That's what of economy we never got to speak about taxation corporate governance well you know a well-being economy we never got to that point because we were all having this false discussion about whether or not scotland could do it or not so that was my big observation from those two independence referendums and i'm wondering what can we do as not a pro-independence movement per se but what can we do as a democracy to try and have much more conversation about the kind of economy that we can have rather rather than this inability to run our own economy should we be part of the united kingdom or as an independent country
2: Um, i I think it, it has to start almost from a grassroots level so that first you have to prepare people so that they know the basic things that you're talking about, so that they understand currency, so that they, they understand of exchange, and, and very just all the little building blocks that build up to an understanding of how a modern economic system works. Because if people don't have those those type of things, the the notion of like sort of like macroeconomics can actually be uh, seem quite overwhelming and quite alienating. And because of that, if someone's overwhelmed by the the concept of of some sort of like economic model or um, economic or fiscal process that might in turn make them more susceptible to the more negative style of reporting because if you don't really understand it then if they just say you don't understand it but trust me you'll be worse off if you don't really know any better most people will probably err on the side of caution like if I, if I, you know, if I don't know any, if I don't know one way or another, but most of the sources are telling me that I'll be worse off, then if I don't have another reference point or the tools to challenge that, then you're far more likely to lean that way. And
0: there was a lot of coverage of the SNP not being too sure about what currency Scotland mm. would have. How was that reported, and, and is there any way of looking at what kind of influence that had?
2: In terms of as much as the wider economic debate. Um, whether that was you know oil or how you fund the health service or pensions, any of these kinds of things, or even just household economics, F- um, without having quantified that, I would say the issue of currency was the defining economic issue, as as presented through the press. Um, it was it was an ever present, but it, it became almost the, you know, the sort of smoking gun, if you want to describe it as such. Um, after the first televised debate between Alistair Darling and Alex Salmond, where Alex Salmond was a, largely a judge to have not really given a particularly good um, account of himself, particularly on currency. And in the days after that, and um, and in the weeks after that, which led up to the referendum, the lack of answers, um, the supposed lack of answers, and the SNP's lack of sure-footedness on the currency issue um, really played into the hands of um, especially the more unionist press. Because um, it, it allowed them, if, if, sa- if it was presented that Salmon couldn't give a, a, a definitive or convincing answer on the issue of currency, then it was sort of presented that the whole house of cards begins to fall. Because if you can't uh, get the issue of currency correct, then it was presented through the press. Then anything else related to that, which is everything else in an economy, by necessity, also is on very, very shaky ground. And out of all the economic issues that were, that were discussed, the issue of currency, like 100% was the most dominant issue. And usually when it was discussed, it was discussed in negative terms, that either Scotland could have a, um, um, if Scotland had a currency union, it wouldn't actually be independent. Or um, <clears throat> another thing that happened with a fair degree of frequency was a sort of dismissive tone of what a potential um, independent Scotland's uh, own new currency would be, you know, there'd be references to it being, you know, sort of a Panama pound, or, um, or you know, people would say, oh, are they going back to, like, are they going to the drachma or the grout, the Scottish grout and things like that? So, and so instantly giving this impression that a Scottish currency even would would instantly be worthless, um, and again, this all feeds into this greater notion that regardless of what which way you cut it, Scotland would be um an economic decline post-independence at the very best and at the very worst it would be in the midst of an economic catastrophe on the level of um you know the you know something like you know the 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 great the great depression or the the crash from 2007 2008 and and that yeah so that's the the, in, in answer to your question william yeah in terms of in terms of anchoring the fears uh that were being generated and propagated Towards the the current, towards the economy in general, the currency question was the key, the key ankle there, a, well, and it was repeated ad, ad infinitum. Well, there's such a lesson to be learned,
0: isn't it, that if there is another referendum, you know, in the next couple of years, the idea that we can go again with not having a really clear idea of what we are doing with the currency um, is going to undermine. Uh, a, a referendum it's a really important point and um, i just had one final question for you did anyone mention the um the darien disaster when we were talking yeah. about Scottish
2: economics yeah yeah exactly a nice uh, a nice contemporary reference for the inform in 2014 is that they yeah they, they they did um and not not by any means you know you'd have to go looking for it but in a few instances um, especially it came up in one or two comment pieces, but especially turned up in uh, on the letters pages would be you know this idea. Um, <clears throat> if any of my fellow Scots are, are are thinking of voting yes, may I remind them of the Darien calamity? And, and then it would go into you know the you know the uh uh you know the colonists you know dying of malaria and what and it would go into like very kind of graphic detail of how essentially the idea that they wanted to present was. If Scotland tries to go its own economically, it doesn't work out well. And despite the fact that this this example was, I mean, what are we talking three three hundred and twenty four years before twenty fourteen, something like that. And when you put it into that context, and um, the fact that that was being referenced and and being some way seen as like any way legitimate to the discussion of of a modern like industrialized, uh, globalized economy. You know, was was baffling to me, but yeah, and, and unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah, the the Darien, uh, the Darien scheme did actually get mentioned on occasion, and uh, usually well probably always, uh, without exception, from people who weren't exactly that pro independence, if I put it that way.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. It's interesting as well that the currency was presented in a in a way that, in somehow, it would be primitive. You know, when you're talking about the Scottish groat or you know the Panama pound. That somehow it would be obviously it would be rubbish, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, that again it's that that speculation that comes from nowhere, really. Um, yeah. Pretty
2: simple. You know the, the, the language they used each time might have been different. The way they framed it, the hypothetical examples might have changed from from time to time, but or, or instance to instance. But the the main thing that, that they were trying to say, at least in relation to the currency, is for all you know. Um, on the nineteenth of September, your money won't be worth anything. And, I, and as much as that, you know, when we're discussing this here, it's almost um, it's almost like a, um, such a ridiculous concept that it can be easily. But, but the things, if you don't have, if you don't actually have any other frame of reference or any ground in, in economics, and if, and every source is saying this to you day after day after day. That like, well, if it's not. If it's not your pension, it's going to be worth nothing. It's going to be your holidays are going to cost more. If it's not your holidays, your mortgage payments are going to cost more. If it's not that, it will be your household bills. Like it would be when when uh, when that's repeated and repeated and repeated, you can see how it managed to sort of um, that idea managed to um, implant itself into a lot of people. Um, and again, even people who might not necessarily consume the news by literally buying a newspaper, it could just be this passive influence that can filter in just for the course of an average day
1: yeah so i i think that we've kept you for long enough and uh,
2: i've really enjoyed them
1: (laughs) But it's great yeah because we have as well it's been absolutely fascinating to go through what the press representation was at the time of the referendum and and to a certain extent how uh, imbalanced it was how for me really unscientific it was unrepresentative in many ways especially when you're talking about the imbalance between women's representation, that's really interesting. Um, it's been a fascinating discussion, David, and thanks very much for giving us your time. No, well, thanks very thanks much for David.
2: having me
0: on, Well, there you have it. Um, our comments were going off every few seconds on that so it definitely resonated with a lot of the audience what's your thoughts karen when you're looking back on that now
1: um so really interesting that i think the first thing that he brings up as well is the the um the theme of uncertainty was ubiquitous um and also that perhaps journalists were becoming nothing more than stenographers and the mainstream media outlets also had their chosen and regularly used cheerleaders So, you know, the coverage really didn't seem to have any kind of balance at all. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's a really important point. But as I mentioned in the video there, it didn't have balance, but it didn't have any depth. It was it seemed like such a superficial discussion on, you know, the, the most important decision a country would ever make. The level of depth that we were that that we, that we were um, given by our commentators was truly shocking. You know, the the level we all know this. A level of conversations in pubs and cafes and homes across the country was so much more deeper than it was when we were watching the TV or listening to the radio or in the newspaper. And it'd be interesting to see if 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 David thought that because we didn't mention him about the depth, but it certainly seemed clear to me that there just wasn't that depth looking back now c- can you believe we faced that kind of onslaught and, and managed to get through it
1: yeah as i said to david at the start of the interview i mean i was doing my degree in the middle of the um uh, referendum which was frustrating for me because i would have really liked to have been much more involved but um you know that the enormity of um what we were up against is really clear from this interview with david i think
0: Yeah, absolutely. And looking ahead, it'd be interesting to see. And please do in the comments now, if any final comments before we finish, let us know what you thought of the interview, your thoughts about the potential coverage in the next referendum, what we can do, how can we reframe the debate? And, you know, I suppose... Is it important that we lead on areas and like currency and like pensions and and like borders, or do we still have that very kind of reactive position and really struggling to get the coverage? Do we play the same game as we did in twenty thirteen and twenty fourteen? That'd be great. Uh, that'd be great to hear from people. But yeah, we, you know, we had, we had loads of comments, so I'll just you know I'll just um, highlight a couple here. Um. um the. It was funny about the the Darien disaster because you know that 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 was picked up and people trying to explain it and you know can we can you believe that we're still trying to explain something that happened three hundred years ago and say it's not relevant to us as a country? But I thought your points about um, if Scotland did do this, it would be very primitive, as if we couldn't manage our own economy and, and how would we have our own currency, despite the fact that I believe it was the Scotsman who set up the Bank of England. But do you want to extend on that a little bit of your thoughts about that um, lack of uh, perception that, 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 or perceived ability for us to, to run our, our, own com- our, our own economy? Do you think that was consistent in that reporting?
1: Well, you know, I think it's broader than that. And that's that's the reason that um, we started Modern Money Scotland, because at the start of the pandemic, there was this talk of that we, we would have to have, it would have to be imposed, that we would have a post-COVID austerity. And it felt for me very urgent then. It felt important for independence activists to understand about um, economics and about currency. But it feels important that everyone understands this in the UK and the US and other places where um, there, I think there's very little understanding of it and how a modern economic system works with free-floating, sometimes pegged fiat currencies. And uh, it, it's so important that people understand that, and um, you know that the uh, you know the government can't run out of money. And really, mm. what um, what your government really is in charge of is ensuring that you are resourced and that you are provisioned for, your country is provisioned and it runs efficiently, and, uh, and, and really getting to the, to the nub of these, these uh, concepts for most people.
0: And, and that debate's still not happening. And you know, we've you and I have spoken to a few economists who are based in the states, and they're having these conversations all the time about modern monetary theory and deficit spending and how you pay for things. And that conversation is on fire in the U.S. But in the UK, hardly anyone mentions it. Not the Scottish government, not the opposition. it's Still, all about this: who's spending your, um, who, who's spending your at uh, um, taxes on, on 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 various different things. So you're right, and that was mentioned again MMT and I hope that the conversations that we're having and people have around independence can be much more in depth and we we saw a lot of support for the well being economy on here and again as i said in my comment we never got to discuss things like that we didn't discuss rentier capitalism we didn't discuss you know corporation tax we didn't even really discuss scotland's economy in terms of trade and its trade balance and all these types of things that we really need to try and help people understand to be able to talk about to to make a
1: difference and any final comments karen before we we let everyone go i guess the most important thing is to say read the book front page Scotland, um, I'm, I'm working my way through it just now, um, obviously I read the first uh, three chapters, um, I think I'm on the fifth or sixth chapter now, but yeah, really interesting, really interesting coverage.
0: Yeah, we, we've got a link in that, if you just scroll back up the comments you'll see the link to the book and I'll, I'll drop it in the actual comments at the bottom, Oh, uh, well, I did want to mention, um, I think it was um, um, Tradadak who's mentioned the constitution a few times and saying that that would have to come first before central banks and currencies and things like that. So uh, again, I know a lot of people are very supportive of the constitution. Um, So thanks everyone for your um, comments tonight and your engagement. And please, as we always say, please do share the interview as widely as you can. Uh, Please do comment below because if more people see this content, then we really think it'll have a difference as we not just head into... A next referendum campaign winning that happens, but to broaden people's understanding of what the Scottish government can do and what the UK government does, and, and also um, the pressure that we can put on the institutions to, to to have an economy that works much better for all of us. So thanks so much to all of you tonight. Um, I'll bring Karen back on to say goodbye.
1: Goodbye, everyone. Thanks goodbye. for listening. And, oh, oh, before we go next week, Karen. Um, next week we have Dr. Tim Ride out.
0: So, sure. more along the, along some of the, some of the, picking up some of the themes that were discussed in the comments there around the central bank and, and currency. And again, that's a really important uh, episode. And we're looking forward to doing an interview with Tim in a few days and bringing it to you next Wednesday. Until then, thanks for joining us and see you later. Bye now. Bye.
2: Thank you.